Hello there and welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sophia, your new assistant content and podcast editor, and I'm so excited to have joined the Greenfluence team. In the first episode of season three, we're going to sit down with Aaron Wood, the founder of the award-winning national environmental education program, Kids Teaching Kids. Get ready for episode one. here with Aaron Wood. Um, Really great to have you on board. Welcome. We've got a lot to cover, uh, but I thought let's start with where it all began at university. Um, Your studies revolved around a Bachelor of Forest Science in hydrology. Did you have much exposure to the sustainable industry or have any preconceived notions of this field? Yeah, well, look, my story is kind of a bit interesting in that it really wasn't university that determined kind of my pathway. It was actually much earlier than that when I was growing up in northwest Victoria on the banks of the mighty Murray River, Um, beautiful place. And we actually just would love my brother and I, you know, going fishing and riding our bikes and just being out in in nature. So my love for, for nature and the environment and you know, the importance of, of a healthy environment for us really started at a really young age. So, you know, my, my university studies in forest science certainly gave me a lot of the knowledge about what kind of fields that I could go into in terms of sustainability, um, but it really started at a much younger age for me. I think what the forest science course taught me, though, was that I didn't really want to go into, um, into forest industries. That wasn't really what was exciting me. I think what really excited me a lot more was, you know, management of, of our catchments, our river systems, um, you know, our national parks, that kind of thing. So I could have gone, I could have gone anywhere really. I could have gone into parks management or waterway management, but um, chose to go into the water industry initially. Right. And so this formal education, um, I know you sort of chose to go down this path, but like how, how did it influence your decision to go towards sustainability like how did you sort of navigate from hydrology to where you are now um i think for me like i it wasn't again you know i came out um in a recession for Australia. So lots of young people in Australia haven't experienced what a recession's like. So I thought I'd just get out of university and walk straight into a job. Well, that didn't happen. Um, So, you know, I moved back home to Mildura after studying at the University of Melbourne and I really just kind of um, fell into my early career where I had a friend of mine who was working for a water authority. He said, look, there's a short-term contract um, looking at drainage issues around um, the river environment and what impact salinity was having. So there was a big, big salt problem up in Mildura um, and that was impacting, you know, horticulture and all sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I did a three-month contract with him and and then sort of got in, my foot in the door in the sustainability industry and was lucky enough to then get a what, what I call my first real job was at the Mallee Catchment Management Authority as a waterway floodplain manager. Yeah, awesome. And on that note, Aaron, so you mentioned that you sort of, I guess, got a job um, or started university around the time of recession, obviously completely different. And, you know, now sustainability is a very popular field among quite a few members of Greenfluence and also like the wider uni community. Um, what was what was the perception of the field like in your time? And what did people think about climate change at that time? 
Well, I think it's a great question. I like to say that I was, you know, into green before it was the new black, you know, the new cool thing to be involved in. Um, but I think when I was growing up, um, particularly growing up in a regional town, you know, being interested in kind of science and biology and chemistry probably wasn't the coolest thing you could think about. You know, it was more about representing your school in sport or, or playing footy or something like that. So I think definitely the environmental field and all the different jobs that you can go into is just, you know, it's come so far since um, I went through university. Um, you know, not to say that it, it wasn't something that young people thought about back then. They absolutely did. But I just think every young person you talk to now, you look at the recent federal election and the results that, that have been had there and you can just see I like to think that, you know, some of those youth climate strikes that were held, particularly even our younger kids in high school and primary school, literally saying we want a more sustainable future, um, that's that's amazing to see the, the knowledge and awareness and understanding that young people have now. Um, it, it just goes to show that a lot of things just happen, like you've just talked about your experience just being a graduate in, in the middle of recession, and I think a lot of our listeners can late. We have experienced um, a, a lot of economic downturn and this is sort of, you know, mimicking a recession and um, a lot of our listeners would, would relate to some of the things you're saying. And, and I guess to our listeners, Aaron is, is an example of how, you know, in, even in a recession, you just got to take opportunities as they come. Sometimes things will not go your way, but um, there, there's bound to be something that sort of helps you along your journey. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the the motto that I've lived by all my life is, you know, I haven't necessarily been the best in the class or the smartest person when it comes to, you know, academic results, but I've just grabbed every opportunity that's come my way. So, you know, if there's a committee that I can be on, if there's something I can volunteer in, if I can do some work experience or, you know, do something a bit different each year, I just grab hold of that with both hands. And I've had some awesome adult mentors, you know, over my journey as well. So it hasn't been you know all by myself like my mother and father have been you know hugely significant in my life in terms of what I've been able to achieve and also my my lovely wife Stephanie and my kids are now supporting you know me to do great things as well. Yeah I think that concept of gratitude is so important and I think these days as well we are very fortunate to have really good online communities like in terms of using LinkedIn and um, various communities. I love like LinkedIn. The, it's my yeah, favorite. Yeah, I'm, I'm all over <laughs> LinkedIn as well. Um, I think it's a great tool, especially for people our age, like being able to connect with people like yourselves or people in the industry who have so much experience. I think it's phenomenal. And um, that's what we're trying to build at Greenfluence as well in sustainability and really sort of, I guess, divert this space for young people. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's hugely important. I think, Shree, I think this is the way that this interview came about for Greenfluence was through LinkedIn. I just think it's the best It's the best tool because, you know, you can speak to just about anyone that you, you know, you want to speak to in the field. You just reach out and drop them a line. And I try and reply to most people who reach out to me, you know, on LinkedIn because I think I was just starting my career, you know, 25 years ago and, um, you know, lots of people open the door for me. So hopefully I can do the same for others. That's amazing. Um, so for everyone listening, um, Aaron is open uh, to any messages you might have. Um, reach out on LinkedIn. On this topic of mentorship and leading and just trying to figure your own path, I, I wanted to 
delve a bit deeper into kids teaching kids and and your journey into sustainability. Um, For our listeners, Kids Teaching Kids promotes positive well-being and helps to build resilience in young people. On top of this, it raises awareness and drives the action, bringing communities together to solve uh, common challenges and helps the next generation of leaders um, who will take collective responsibility for our future. Um, And I think this really resonates with me because one of the components of kids teaching kids is the idea of mentorship and the idea of trying to build resilience in this program is sort of embedding these components to drive action in in environmental um, in the environmental and sustainability area. And I think I, growing up, I didn't really have access to this, um, and you know, I, I didn't. Um, I didn't really look after my health, which ended up affecting my stress and anxiety. And if I if I did look after it a bit more, if I had access to some kind of program like this um, earlier on, I think this would be um, a way to sort of encourage me to take a leadership opportunity and make the best of it. Um, and I also reflect on the effects of anxiety that kids are actually currently facing with technology, um, all this media thrown at them, just observing the level of anxiety my eight-year-old brother and his friends experience. I I wonder what's done to address this issue and what's going to be done to address these issues. Um, So uh, I really am really interested to delve a bit deeper into uh, what what inspired you to start Kids Teaching Kids? What's the whole vision around it? And how would you define collective responsibility for our future? Well, I think what inspired me was a lot of the things that you've just said that, you know, when I was young, uh, it wasn't the coolest thing to be involved in the environmental sustainability space. Um yeah, sure, there was lots of great programs that you could get involved in, but I think there wasn't that sense of community or that sense of shared um, a shared mission or a shared vision for, for how things could be better. And I think the other thing that was um, worrying for me when I started Kids Teaching Kids, and I was in my early 20s when I started the Kids Teaching Kids program with my, my father, actually, um, and the reason I started that was because, you know, I saw all these um, – you know, big issues about the environment um, being debated by largely older, mostly men, largely older guys trying to make decisions about our future. And I was like, well, where's the youth voice here? Like, when do we get to have a say about what sort of future that we want to see? Um, And so starting Kids Teaching Kids was about saying, if we can bring the enthusiasm and the the energy and the the different way of looking at things together with the the knowledge of the older generations, so the mentoring relationship, as you've said, is really important in kids teaching kids. What kids do is if they choose an environmental topic, it could be, you know, rivers, it could be wetlands, it could be renewable energy, it could be climate change, it doesn't matter. 
But we then partner them with an expert industry mentor, whether it be a freshwater research scientist or, you know, someone who's expert in, in wind or solar. Um, we partner them with the school students so that they have got the best possible information. But the students drive that presentation and they have to then present that to their peers during either Kids Teaching Kids Week or our Kids Teaching Kids conferences. And what you get is these kids take these really, because we go from, you know, all the way down to grade four or five up to year 10. Kids are taking really complex information, um, you know, maybe how climate change works and impacts the planet. And because they do such good research, they understand the topic inside and out, but they also understand how we how we learn. They understand how each other learns. And so they take this really complex issue and they put it into a presentation or language um, or a medium that is really engaging. And so we say, you know, it's with heart, head and hand. So um, the heart is the passion for the environment. Lots of kids have that. The head really comes through um, understanding your topic and, and ensuring that you're doing the best possible research. And then we say you've got to take action. So that's the hand. So with heart, head and hand, our young people literally, um, you know, starting to build the sustainable future that they want to see. Amazing. Um, I, I also wanted to sort of reflect on the current journey you've taken. It's been 20 years. I feel very old. Wow. <laughs> I started when I was 10. No. <laughs> Look at, don't worry. <laughs> I just, like, that's incredible. Um, I, from this experience, what are the successes and and failures you've um, you've learned through your journey? Oh, so many. Um, you know, when we when we first started kids teaching kids, uh, literally we couldn't get. You know, we had like five schools who wanted to take part, and we were literally traveling the country. My father and I, um, almost like traveling salesmen, like we've got this great education product. It's an awesome model. It will do such good things for your students, and you know, it's so important for them to engage in in environmental education and I was like yeah 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 we've had 10 people like you come through and tell us that we need to get involved in swimming sports or all these other things so you know in those early days it was pretty soul destroying because we saw the power of the model because we'd worked with a group of kids we'd seen not only the change in them from an environmental education perspective yes they knew so much about the environment but it was some of the things you spoke about earlier their leadership skills their ability to work collaboratively together their their belief in a bright and compelling future which is one of the key planks to resilience because they they thought geez this big problem that we talk about we can actually have an impact on that in our local community so that starts to to make you feel pretty good about yourself so we had this amazing you know model that we thought but it was literally like going and knocking on doors and you know we traveled the whole country we traveled New Zealand we went to you know ended up going to South Korea and places like this just literally showing people guys if you get involved in this model it's going to be amazing Um, but that's really tough you know there were times when I questioned what we were doing. I'd sold my car to start kids teaching kids and invest in, you know, what was a back then a social enterprise, you know, like before social enterprises became a buzzword, that's that's what this was. Um, but it still had to turn a profit because otherwise we couldn't keep the program going. So trying to carve out um, you know, kids teaching kids in a in a space which was largely a kind of charity type space, you know, not for profit space. Um, that's probably something I'm pretty proud of because that was really tough going, and it it culminated in us winning in 2012. We won the um, the Telstra Limited uh, News Limited Micro Business of the Year, and I was really proud of that because it said 
you, you don't have to be in the red to be green. You know, you can actually make make money by doing good. And I think a lot of these, um, you know, B Corp businesses and, um, you know, social enterprises are now showing that you can actually do good things for, for people and planet and still turn a profit. Yeah, on, on that note, I think that whole concept of people and profit, I think, is one of the most amazing things to come out of business in the, in the past five, 10 years, because I think in the past in schools, we've had this mentality of like, you know, I guess find a stable job that's well paying, provide for your family, things like that. But now it's more like, OK, we can do both. And this whole concept of social enterprises is just so interesting. And Aaron, it seems like you have a crystal ball, like you seem to be getting ahead of these trends, like at least a decade before they're big. Um and I guess just on that note, I think that's such an important skill of a leader, being able to identify like trends and being forward thinking. Like, do you have any tips for young people about how to sort of, I guess, stay at the forefront of trends or try and be innovative? I, I, th- I hate to say it, but just read a lot. Like, it's amazing how some, you know, sometimes people will say, God, how did you know that? How did you know that was going to happen? It's like, because I've been reading all these different pieces of information. Now, some of that is to read all the daily media reports. Some of that is to listen to podcasts like this. Some of that is to listen to traditional media or follow. And, and it's amazing how you can just sort of start to connect the dots and go, Wow, this is this is going to be a big issue in in the future, and um, yeah. So I can't say enough. Read as much as you can, and then if you've got um, you know adult mentors, sort of older adult mentors in your life, um, use them. You know, reach out and build your kind of mentor network. And mentoring doesn't have to be like you know once a week I go and see this person and they tell me you know everything I need to know about life. It can be someone you speak to for an hour and you don't speak to again. It could be someone you send an email to just to, to get some advice and insight. Um, yeah, I just can't emphasize enough how important it is just to, to read a lot and, and then try and connect those dots in your mind by bouncing those ideas off others as well. Yeah, um, I definitely think that is so important because, you know, only when you start inquiring and actually understanding you know, your environment or whatever you are interested in, um, only then can you start looking for mentors, right? Um, what are you going to ask your mentor if you don't know <laughs> what you're looking for? Um, so, yeah, definitely really important to do that. And I, I think this is another tip for, for everyone tuning in that do as much reading as you can. And um, we're trying to get our articles um uh, published a bit more regularly so you can access um, access some of the information uh, on climate change and responsible investing. Um, but on to another note, Aaron. In 2008, um, you completed a Churchill Fellowship, which took you to New York and Geneva working with the United Nations to research replication of environmental education programs on a global scale. What are some of the major findings that were found in these programs or whatever you can share? I think, you know, that was an amazing experience, you know, to go and, um, you know, spend that time. And that was once again, just another example of kind of grabbing hold of an opportunity. This this Churchill Fellowship is available to to anyone who, you know, is willing to submit a, a paper and, and sort of um, look at an area of study that they want to learn about. And, and it's right from, you know, environment to medical to anything, you know, law right across the board, you know, and what they do is they pay for you to go and study um, this issue overseas. So it was a huge opportunity for me. What I learned was, 
organizations like the United Nations are just huge, huge structures, you know, like to try and get change through those structures is really difficult. Um, so often what I was seeing is that it was actually cities that were coming together and leading the conversation, or it might be one nation that had really led the conversation. So I think any time that we think, oh, you know, we're just one person or we're just one town or we're just one city, what do we matter to the, the sort of global conversation? Um, I just can't emphasise enough how um, – you know, people with innovative spirit who roll up their sleeves and actually want to get things done and bring other people with them, um, that sort of stuff can reverberate so much more than you think. Um, and so I kind of went to the United Nations thinking that I'd just be in awe of the place and like feel so small, you know. And and part of it was, you know, I, I went and stood where um, Ban Ki-moon had stood, you know, in the, in the UN General Assembly and pretended that I was making a speech there and, you know, but it was it was amazing. I got to, to meet all of these fantastic, um, you know, people who ran, ran all the various programs for the United Nations. But what I realised was that kids teaching kids – was, was doing such great things and that I had a lot to teach them as well. So um, I think any experience that I get where I can actually broaden my horizons and look at what's going on internationally has been hugely beneficial because sometimes in Australia we can get very, you know, in our own little bubble and, you know, there, there were years where it might have felt like that climate change was something that no one else talked, you know, don't talk about climate change. It's just for people from, you know, the environmental movement or the left or whatever it might be. And then you would go to a, 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 a um, you know, an event or a function or a program that had international representatives, um, and they would be talking about climate change like the greatest economic opportunity, the biggest economic risk, and you're like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? And so I think that ability to, to kind of get out of your bubble and, and, and experience you know, what's going on globally is really important, and you can actually do that without even leaving you know, your, your lounge room, like just read international newspapers just read international pod, listen to international podcasts just jump on international websites and and you can start to see different sorts of conversation emerging and that can actually also help you get ahead of of trends as well yeah for sure i think um it's so interesting how in australia we seem to be in this bubble with our own climate politics and only when you go outside and see what's happening in like the eu uk you see like like what's really happening and, and how much that we can learn. And I think it's just super interesting. I, I think the other day, like someone told me, like because there's an, there's an economic case for say, like our natural resources, coal um, and various other mining materials, it's very hard for the government to see that shift. But I think slowly we're sort of seeing that, which is like very exciting. And I think your, your experience in New York was in 2008, correct, Aaron? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that was obviously some time ago. And then we had um, quite a few things in politics about carbon tax and things like that. So um, I guess like what, what sort of happened, I guess, during that time in Australian politics and what do you think is going to happen in the future in terms of climate politics in this country? Yeah, what a big question. Like, <laughs> like, what what happened was that we we just went into this into the matrix or something. I don't know what. Like, it, it feels like the last you know ten fifteen years. It, it's it's really sad because Australia had bipartisan support for a price on carbon. Like, what people don't understand is that things like an emissions trading scheme actually came about under John Howard's, um, you know, time as Prime Minister. Um, 
and then all of a sudden the, the climate wars began and, and, and what we saw was people trying to polarise the issue of whether you believed in climate change or not, even though it's really weird to talk about believing in science because science is the original sceptic's kind of, um, you know, um, vocation. It really, really is about hard facts and then about, about assessing those facts. So we went into a really kind of terrible situation where it became, you know, deeply politicised when it should have just been about what are scientific facts telling us what opportunities are there, what risks are there, and let's get on with the job. I think I'm, I'm pleased to say that, um, you know, the signs are good in, in terms of um, the recent federal election, which was a big endorsement for action on, on climate change, whether that was voting in the independents or, or voting in the Labor government with stronger uh, policies. Um, but there's still a lot of work to do. I'm in the clean energy sector now with the Clean Energy Council. Um, this isn't some like, you know, backyard kind of tinker in your shed kind of industry. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, this is a huge opportunity for Australia to truly be a, a global renewable energy superpower, particularly when you think about things like green hydrogen exports, the ability to produce hydrogen from renewable energy, you know, our sun resources, our wind resources, and to essentially export that to the world, to countries which are already reliant on hydrogen like Japan. Um, this is a sliding doors moment that we're in right now. If we get the policy right, if we get the investor incentives and the investor certainty right, um, the pipeline of projects are there within the next five, five years. We're not talking, you know, 2050. I think 2050 Yes, great to have a target. This is this is this is a twenty thirty game. Like there's going to be big winners and big losers in the next sort of five to ten years. And geez, I hope Australia is going to be a big winner out of out of all of this. Yeah, I hope so too. Um, just just reflecting on green hydrogen for a moment. This um, we we actually interviewed someone who um, who specialises in that area. Um, so for everyone tuning in, um, feel free to listen to um, our pod with Tamara goes into depth um, about a green hydrogen and it's very interesting. Yeah, no, excellent. That's great that you've, I mean, this is the thing too, you know, like um, you can get involved in the kind of politics and the debates and, you know, have conversations till you're kind of blue in the face with people who might disagree with how climate change is caused or whether it's happening at all or how quickly it's happening. But when when the when the money markets move, when when the globe prices in carbon, you can have those arguments until you're blue in the face and you're kind of talking to yourself, you know, like you either acknowledge the reality of the of the of the market that you're operating in or you don't. Um, but again, like I, I was on I was the deputy Lord Mayor for the City of Melbourne and and during that time I was lucky enough to to instigate and lead the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project. And this is probably the thing I'm most proud of after Kids Teaching Kids. You know, Kids Teaching Kids was about generational change and about sort of building this, this next generation of young people who wouldn't repeat the mistakes of, of, of the past. But the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project was a, a project which started when the Clean Energy Finance Corporation was on the chopping block. The renewable energy target was up for review. Um, you know, the Climate Authority had been disbanded. It was a terrible time in, in politics. Um, and right then I realised, well, hang on, City of Melbourne's got all this purchasing power. We use all this electricity. And so what the Melbourne Renewable Energy Project did was 
um, brought together 14 organisations, people like, you know, National Australia Bank, um, lots of other local governments, uh, Zoos Victoria, Australia Post, um, you know, all sorts of really leading organisations with City of Melbourne. And we, we pulled our electricity purchase. Um, we went direct to market uh, for new renewable energy build. And what that resulted in was a successful tender for building of an 80 megawatt wind farm in regional Victoria. Um, that took yeah, it took City of Melbourne to 100% renewable powered for its operations. Um, yeah, the power was equivalent to 17,600 uh, average households energy each year. And um, yeah, that that to me is, is something I'm hugely proud of. But the other thing it did was it drove 140 construction jobs in regional Victoria. So it was kind of using purchasing power to not only reduce emissions and do a good thing for the environment, but also to drive jobs and, and opportunity um, as well. So we then we ran Melbourne Renewable Energy Project number two, which was just to demonstrate that we could do it much more quickly. And, and we did that with six corporates like Mondelez and uh, ISPT and these guys. And um, so people like the Cadbury's factory, you know, suddenly became 100% renewable energy. So look, what's what not what's not more to like, you know, chocolate and the fact that it's, you know, 100% renewable energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that'll just encourage people to eat more chocolate because it's sustainable, right? <laughs> um, That's my but, excuse anyway. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. And I think like, you know, like obviously what's been done with Melbourne Renewable Energy Project is amazing, but I think it just shows the strong link between sustainability and leadership. And that's something that um, Shri, myself, and our co-founder Maya some, is something we want to also, um, of course, I guess, start building on a much smaller scale, of course. But, and I think this really leads me on to the next point about the Clean Energy Council. And that's also um, a leadership role that you're involved in. You're involved in external affairs. And I think the benefit of sustainability and leadership is the purpose of serving the community. I think to me at the heart, that's what it's all about. Um, I feel like most people aren't motivated I guess, by money or by financial means. I, I guess everyone has to make a living, but I guess at the fundamental core, it's like, I guess your job is essentially how do we help Australia become more renewable or help shift the thinking? So wanted to get a bit of a better understanding about the Clean Energy Council. Um, I understand there is some sort of membership based and you guys are the peak body um, for clean energy in Australia, but also wanted to get a better understanding of what you do in your current role. Yeah, great. Um, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, you want to be able to earn a living, but to yep. know that you're actually doing something good for the future as well is pretty, you know, it's a pretty great thing to get you out of bed every morning, you know, even yep. when it's really cold in Melbourne. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you're exactly right. The Clean Energy Council, we've got over a thousand members now and um, it's an amazing organisation where you've got everyone from like, you know, small businesses who are rooftop solar installers, um, you know, the fact that we have the highest, you know, um, rooftop solar installation in terms of households and small businesses, over 3 million household um, rooftop solar systems is is amazing. Um, but then you've got like the big, bigger um, wind and solar companies, um, green hydrogen, you know, FFI, um, sort of Twiggy Forest um, you know, organisation is a member. Um, and then you've got sort of the investor um, businesses as well, um, and also quite a lot of the, the transmission providers are, because you can't, you know, move electricity around without, without the transmission. So it's a really kind of broad mix of, of members, but really our, our, our very simple kind of remit is to accelerate the clean energy 
uh, transition. So, you know, we've got a target of, of 100% renewable energy for Australia by 2030. We, we think that's absolutely achievable. Not only is it good for the environment because it reduces emissions, but, you know, at the moment we've got all these huge um you know, spikes in electricity and, and gas, um, and that's because we, you know, we've got um, exposure to international gas markets. We've, you know, we haven't had strong leadership in terms of, um, you know, that transition. But the, the the single biggest thing to put downward pressure on people's electricity prices is more renewable energy. Um, so, you know, it's it's massively exciting to be in a business that's doing you know really good things for the environment, but also amazing things for the economy as well. And I guess just on that note, Aaron, you brought a very interesting point about the idea of, of electricity prices. Um, and I think like that's been a huge factor in Australia being a bit of a laggard in the climate space. How do you balance the whole economic incentive versus the environmental incentive? Because obviously we do employ, say, quite a few people, um, say, in mining or other fossil fuel intense industries. And of course, people... Are trying to make ends meet and they want falling electricity prices like how do you balance that trade-off and how do we incentivize people to change their behavior yeah i think you know there's there's so many things that we can do and and that's to have good long-term policy um you know we really need a transition plan that deals with the next 10 years and lines up our skills gaps lines up our education and training opportunities you know, lines up the um, the need to ensure that we've got domestic processing and materials um, to value add to, you know, some of the, the lithium mining and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, but the other big thing about this is, you know, for any towns that are heavily reliant on the fossil fuel industry, they can't be left behind. So, you can't have a conversation which leaves people behind. It just doesn't work. So, you know, these coal communities, they know change is on the horizon. Um, many of them just want to know that they've got a job. It doesn't matter if that job is in the coal industry or the renewable energy industry. So we've got a lot more work. Things like the Latrobe Valley Authority, you know, some of these models now that are being implemented um, are really good models where, it's involving the community, it's involving the workers, it's involving the unions, it's involving the companies all coming together and talking about what does a transition look like? What do our workers need? What opportunities, what reskilling, what education opportunities are there? What new businesses can we start around the clean energy transition? The great thing about things like offshore wind, for example, is a lot of the offshore wind resource is located very close to where you might have, uh, you know, existing coal ports and, and coal mining communities. So, um, I think the benefit of leadership, the benefit of long-term planning, the benefit of having a really joined up plan across all of these key areas like workforce, you know, skills and training, you know, materials, investment, all of these things is that you can minimise the negative impacts and you can maximise the opportunities. That's not saying that, that that there isn't going to be an impact. Absolutely, we can't be opening up any new coal or gas if we want to meet our targets. We've got to transition away from coal and gas as quickly as we can, but that's got to be done in an orderly fashion. The last thing you want is coal generators, you know, saying, but we're closing in, in a few years' time. And, and look, I love what Mike Cannon-Brooks and people like Twiggy Forrest are doing, but at the same time, I bet you Mike Cannon-Brooks would say, you know, if we had long-term leadership, if we had a long-term plan, perhaps he wouldn't, you know, have to be doing the things that he's doing in terms of, you know, what's going on with AGL at the moment. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I find that like super fascinating. I was actually going to bring that up, the whole the whole Mike Hannon-Brooks case and, you know, the implications that that has. And it's just amazing. It, it sets the precedent in Australia, at least, that, you know, an individual, even though he's extremely wealthy, can really have an impact in the transition and, and things like that. And as you said, like there might be some jobs lost, but then it's our responsibility, I guess, the government, the private sector to try and upskill these people. I know, Shri, um, you were talking before about using Alcoa um, and, and things like that. So wondering if you have any have any insights to add about using different sort of metals or. Yeah, it, it, it's so interesting. We we had a chat with um, uh, the podcast host for Arena Um uh, it's called, uh, the podcast is called Rewired, but it's by Arena, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency. Um, and she interviews uh, one of the uh, founders of um, Arena, and they were talking about this project they're trying to fund. It's called Alcoa, and the whole thing, it's called um, Mechanical Vapor vapor recompression so it recycles the steam used in alumina production of the refining process so it essentially just reduces the use of using more coal um and it's it's not um i guess green hydrogen and it's not electrifying the whole process but i think it's a step in the right direction in terms of transitioning into um electrifying the whole mining process this is the thing without kind of having to delve deep into the technical detail, there is there is so many great um, kind of early stage um, businesses, research projects around, you know, using alternatives to things like coking coal, you know, for, for steel. Um, so I think, you know, again, coming back to people like Twiggy Forest and those, they're saying not only is our, our opportunity about, you know, exporting our renewable energy around the world, like Mike Cannon-Brooks' Sun Cable project or, you know, sending green hydrogen to, um, to Japan, what you can do is in all of these processes, you can often use green hydrogen as a substitute um, or, you know, other low emissions uh, substitutes where we're then producing things like green steel, green metals, and that's Australia's ability to influence far beyond the scale of what Australia is about. And we've we've heard for so long, oh, Australia shouldn't act too quickly because we're such a small part of the emissions profile. You'll quickly hear that changing too. We can have a massive impact on the global emissions profile because we already do by sending our coal all around the world. Um, you know, it's a little bit cute not to measure the emissions from our coal that gets sent to whichever country to be burnt over there as part of our emissions profile. But equally, we've got a huge opportunity with things like green metals, um, you know, green steel, um, and, and not only that, but exporting the know-how from, from these processes all around the world as well. Because in Melbourne, you know, again, when I my time on City of Melbourne, one of the biggest exports for City of Melbourne centrally is education. Um, so not only do you kind of sell your products um, and your services, uh, you sell your know-how um, and that's a big industry as well. So I just like, it's been really tough being in the sustainability space for like, you know, the last, particularly the last 10 years have been really, really hard going. Um, but, you know, in spite of that, you know, the highest penetration of rooftop solar in the world, um, you know, well over 30% of our our power coming from renewables in South Australia. A few days, you know, over the Christmas period, it was a, it was being powered 100% by renewables. Um, you know, we've got so much to look forward to in Australia. We just need that that national leadership that can, we can all get behind. But um, now, I want to. I also want to say, like with Mike Cannon Brooks, like 
my hat goes off to him, you know. It's one thing to be really wealthy, but it's another thing to then take that wealth and do good things with it because so many people just, you know, go and spend that money on themselves and, you know, travel around in their super yachts and their private jets and don't do too much else for the world. And so to see Mike Cannon-Brooks really put himself out there and, you know, potentially change the the the, the future of our biggest, you know, carbon emitter in the country is is massively exciting what I'm hearing loud and clear with where we're at with things like this recent gas price um, spike is, you know, a lot of, a lot of people sort of have, have done one of two things. One, they've said, I don't want any action at all. Then the next kind of person says, well, let's not move too quickly on this. You know, let's, let's use gas as a stepping stone to, to, to renewable energy. But, you know, what we're seeing loud and clear now is that we have the sun, we have the wind. We have all the all the technology to do what we need to do, um, and and the price point is now. It's the, the argument is not there even from a price perspective. So um, there's just no reason for us not to go uh, as a nation. Um, you know, all in on renewable energy. Like you know, it's almost now is the time to say gas is a transition fuel. That conversation should be dead as well. When you look at our exposure to, you know, the international gas price, when you look at the ability that we've got, that nations around the world just like we are literally the envy of the world when it comes to our renewable energy resources and our ability to to produce those resources. Amazing, um, and I think like. You brought up a crucial point before, and I think it's a matter of how the government and how people tell the story. Like so much of the time, it's been looked from a risk point of view, like we're going to be losing jobs. We're going to be losing our export income. But as we've touched on this whole podcast, it's the opportunity. Like we have such a high rate of solar. We've got a lot of wind power. We've got all these renewable energy sources um, and it's time for us to make the most of it. And I think like you didn't mention that journey in sustainability, you know, has been quite hard the past 10 years. and I think like it's thanks to people like you that we're moving towards this space. And I think like it's really amazing that you were rewarded with an OAM um, as part of your service. And personally, I haven't really talked to anyone who has an OAM and I'm sure like our listeners would like to hear more like what was that process like and what was it like to receive that honor? Oh, it was amazing actually because um, it, it was – it actually got po- – my, my ceremony to go to Government House to accept the award um, got postponed because of COVID. You know, we're all in lockdown in Melbourne and um, so, you know, that was a really tough time for a lot of people um, and the, I think the big thing for me is that you get you get nominated and you don't even know. So um, I know the person that nominated me now and um, he's just an amazing person. And But they have, it's quite a rigorous process they have to go to. They have to write up this whole application. They then have to get um, very senior people to kind of endorse your application. Then the, um, you know, the Australia Day, the Order of Australia sort of kicks in and reviews your, your um, application, checks out that you're not dodgy or anything like that. Um, and then that's recommended up um, – uh, you know, for decision, but ultimately, you know, it goes to to the governor general and um, and um, you know the governor um, of Victoria, you know, saw fit to endorse that as well. Um, and then the ceremony is just like I'm, it was worth waiting for. You know, you go up to government house and you're amongst all of these amazing people, and and you literally get a medal pinned on you <laughs> on your jacket. So and and it's and it's just such a beautiful thing, like. 
I think they do the ceremony so well and they what they say on the day is, you know, you might have spent your life thanking others, which, you know, I'm always like, oh, I, I, there's so many people I need to thank for my journey. And they said, you know, today is the day that you can, you don't have to thank others. You can actually just feel proud of what you've achieved. And I think the biggest thing for me was that it wasn't an award saying, you know, well done for the last few weeks or, you know, here's an award for what you're going to do in the future. Um, the fact that it was recognition for, my work in the environment, so all the way back to kids teaching kids over 20 years, it recognised the eight years on local government and then it also recognised my community work as well. Um, it was just really special to, to share that with my mum and my dad and my wife and, and, and my daughter. It was just, yeah, amazing day, absolutely, yeah. Your daughter must have been so proud. Yeah, like, she, 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 she... like, my dad got a... <laughs> yeah, it was just, she was jumping out of her skin and, and probably... um. You know, that was probably the the, the the most special part is just sharing that moment with them. Um, yeah, it, it was really a special time, I've got to say. It was, um, I think, you know, the fact that we have that recognition in our country and, you know, some people can talk about the Order of Australia and say, oh, you know, what what is this organisation? But you see people being recognised that have, you know, just volunteered all their life or they've done something amazing, um, you know, to support others in their community or, yeah, just really a lot of selfless people doing doing great things and, and they weren't there trying to get an award. Um, they were just doing it because it was the right thing to do. That's so amazing. It's actually such an honour being able to interview you today. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. Um and we really appreciate the time that you've you've taken out. Um, you you are so friendly. You're open, and the advice you've given um, is, is so valuable. Thank you. That's lovely, and and thanks for having me on. I've really enjoyed the chat, and um, thanks for all you're doing, getting these getting these stories out there as well. Because you know, I just can't um, overemphasize at all the, the 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 importance of telling stories, the importance of talking about these issues in you know in ways like this is is just so important because those conversations can lead to to people understanding and and understanding can lead to people taking action and you know australia has the great opportunity then through that to to be that renewable energy superpower that we should be yeah no 100 percent. and um i think like personally for me i think you're such a role model in this field and i think for us um for Shri, myself my and the rest of our team when we're building green fluence, I think like we think of that community and that's something you've really built. So I'm um, just wondering if you could give us some tips and to our wider audience, like any tips on like how to build a community and how to build something from scratch, because that whole idea is something that I, and I think all of green fluence find super interesting. Use LinkedIn all the time. Like I cannot say how good it is. I wish I had LinkedIn when I was starting kids teaching kids. I tell you, like the ability for, for anyone to kind of send a message to someone they admire. Now, you're not always going to get a reply, right? Like that's just not, not the way it's going to be. But it's amazing, you know, put yourself out there on LinkedIn, do short video clips, show who you are as a person, put that personality through even if it's a you know even if it's an organization that you're starting and then I just I think the most important thing for me is don't 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 damage your brand like your brand is your life right like be honest operate with integrity be kind to people um, you know if, if someone asks for advice and they're just starting out take the time try and help others coming into the industry as well um, 
you know, if you're a good person, I, I have to believe that, that that ultimately comes back to you in some way. So, um, my my strongest advice is just to just to be be good, be a good person, be kind. You know, help help others. That comes back to you eventually, um, and people see that. They want to get on board with with people that mean something that that have integrity. So, um, put yourself out there and no looking back. Yeah, no, I think that's that's phenomenal tips and something that I'll I'll definitely keep in mind um, as we build green influence. And yeah, I, I think Shri's already said it, but you know it's been a huge honor to have you on the podcast, Aaron. And um, I think like it's it's so it's been so interesting to see your journey over time, especially when, as you mentioned, sustainability wasn't like a big thing, and to see how you've progressed and to and to see how the space has progressed. And um, yeah, and and I think your career and and your diversity speaks breadth about you know who you are as a person and what you're doing in this field. And I think for young people like myself and Shri, it's like so inspirational. And thank you so much for your kindness. And you know, it's been a huge honor to have you on our podcast. Thanks so much, Aaron. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for having me. What did you think of the first episode of season three? Aaron Wood is just an amazing guest with some amazing insights. It is so inspiring how hands-on with the sustainability community Aaron has been throughout his life and career and how many opportunities he has been able to take advantage of to make a real difference. If this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us and please feel welcome to listen to our previous episodes. If you're a regular listener, thank you for listening in again. We really appreciate it and love to grow our Greenfluence community. The Greenfluence team and I would love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch and become a Greenfluencer, check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. The links are in the show notes. We'd appreciate if you leave us a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. We'll see you next time.